Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I wonder if you have your Bibles with you this morning, whether you would turn to John 14 um, for me. It's in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Uh, and when you get there, if you could find chapter 14, um, that would be even better. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in this chapter looking at the words here. Um, if you're new to the church this morning, um, firstly, welcome. It's really good to see you. We're glad you're here. Um, but what you might not be aware of is that um, currently we are in the middle of a teaching series here at Tamworth Elim called Final Encounters. And although that sounds like a dodgy science fiction show from the 90s, um, it's actually a look at the encounters that Jesus had in the final week of his life leading up to his crucifixion. Um, and we've chosen to do this series now. Because in a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter together. That's the 21st of April. Um, and so this series is really designed to take us on a journey to the cross. And we're, we're traveling with Jesus. We're witnessing the events that took place in that final week. Um, and we thought it would be interesting to view those events through the eyes of the people that Jesus encountered at that time. Now, many of those people were his friends, his his followers, his disciples, those closest to him, um, but not all of them. For example, next week, I want us to spend some time looking at Pontius Pilate, certainly not someone you would call a friend, um, but we're not quite there yet. So where have we gotten to so far? Let me just do a very quick recap. The first encounter we looked at took place at the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. <coughs> And the encounter was with Mary, who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. Um, and Mary poured out her praise and her adoration um, on Jesus in a very special way. She anointed him with this really, really expensive perfume, more expensive than Chanel number no. five. And Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done for me will be told in memory of her. And so he holds her up as this example of what true worship looks like. And then we moved from Bethany into Jerusalem, uh, and we find ourselves at a very intimate meal that Jesus is having with his followers, with those closest to him on the night before his crucifixion. And we looked at a couple of encounters here already. Firstly, we looked at Judas. You know him. The one who decided to betray Jesus, to sell him out to the chief priests, those that were trying to kill him. And we, we thought about what led him to make that decision, concluding that really Judas failed to recognize Jesus as the son of God. And in doing so, he allowed other things to take priority in his life, like money and greed. And we also looked at Peter, Pete the tryhard, always the first to put his hand up in class. Pick me, Jesus, pick me. Eager to impress, willing to give anything a go, wasn't he? Ah, oh, Jesus is walking on water. Hold my beer, I'm going in. <laughs> but his enthusiasm meant that when he fell, he fell hard. And he needed Jesus to bail him out, to pick him up, to lift him out of the water and wipe away his tears. And so we looked at how Pete found his way back as well. So that's Mary, Judas and Peter. And this morning I want us to look at another encounter. Um, but this time we're going to meet three different characters. That's three for the price of one. That's good value for money, all right? 
Don't worry, I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on each person. I will, I will go as, as smoothly and as quickly as we can. So where are we this morning then? Well, we're actually still with Jesus. We're still at this intimate meal that he was having with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, um, often referred to as the Last Supper. And it's not, it's not quite over. We're on the dessert course, we'll say, but we're not quite there yet. It's been, it's been a really rough night, you guys. It's not been good. You know, Judas has left halfway through the evening, right after Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And so the rest of them are thinking, what's he up to? This, isn't, this doesn't look good. Pete is in a huff, right? Because Jesus has just finished telling him that he's going to deny even knowing him right after Peter said, I would die for you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, no, you won't, Pete. Not yet. And to top it all off, Jesus has just finished telling them that, that all that he's prepared them for is about to happen, that he's going to leave them and that they won't be able to go with him. They can't follow him anymore. And so this is like, this is the worst meal ever, okay? It sucks. No one is happy. No one is laughing. This isn't like lads on tour, Jerusalem, AD 30. It's like a funeral parlor up in here, all right? Manic Depressives Anonymous. And Jesus knows it. He can read the atmosphere in the room. But not only that, he knows all that's about to unfold. He knows that he's about to go through his trial And he's about to go through his eventual execution. And he's about to be without them for three days. And he knows that their their whole world is going to come tumbling down around them. And so this was tough. They were not in a good place. I don't know if anyone this morning perhaps can empathize with the disciples. Whether you feel like you're in a place where things just aren't really going as you expected. Like things are starting to kind of tumble down around you. This might be a good sermon for you today. And so with all this going on, he turns round to them, and in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You know that moment when you're feeling really down and you're really struggling, and someone comes up to you and says, chin up, might never happen. How badly do you want to High five them in the face with the chair. Don't let your hearts be troubled. How could he say that? How could he say that at this particular time when they had so much to be troubled about? But Jesus gives them, uh, he goes on, he doesn't just say, chin up, it's all right, stop looking so mopey, lads. He gives them a reason for hope. He gives them a reason for hope. This is what he says. He says, you believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So he says, don't be troubled, but this isn't a chin-up kind of statement because there's a reason, and the reason is that their future is in his hands. Their future is in his hands. And before we kind of move on this morning, let me just try and unpack this a little bit for you because when I was reading it earlier in the week, God really kind of blew my mind with some of the stuff that's here. The first thing he says or or reminds them of is that they need to believe in him. They need to believe in him. When you believe in someone, you 
you put your trust in them. You believe the things they do and the things that they say to be true. Earlier on in John chapter 6, Jesus is approached by a crowd of people who say, what must we do to do the work that God requires? In other words, how do we live our lives for God, Jesus? What, what do we do? And Jesus doesn't say, you be nice or you be kind or you give your money to the poor or you, you attend church every week as we might expect. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in him. There's that very famous verse in John, isn't there? John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in fact, the very last words in the Gospel of John say that the whole account was written in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him we might have life in his name. And so Jesus, Jesus wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe in him. But here's the bit that that really blew my mind. He wants us to trust him because he's invested in our future. He's invested in our future. He knows where he wants us to end up. And he knows that because he's getting it ready for us. He's preparing it. Now, we might have different ideas as to what that looks like. And probably those ideas are based upon our earthly expectations. You might, for example, be imagining a four-poster bed, a a hot tub, a chocolate fountain, a a vending machine that dispenses bacon. You know, like, you know those ticket machines when you go in the car park and instead of tickets, just bacon. Can you imagine that? I haven't thought about it much. Um, I can't promise those things because they're not in the Bible. But I, I am confident that if Jesus is preparing it, it will be better than we can possibly imagine. And the thing is this, Jesus wants us to get there. Later on in John 17, he prays for all believers, prays for all believers, that includes us, and he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to be with me where I am. He wants us to be with him. Hebrews 7, 25 says he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And Romans 8, 34 says Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's preparing a place for us and he's praying that we get there to be with him. How awesome is that? Just let that sink in for a moment or two. You know, if your world is, is falling apart, if you're feeling um, betrayed like the disciples did with Judas, or, or if you're feeling like a failure like, like Peter was in this moment, or when your, your whole life just feels like it's not going the way it should be going, everything's a, a mess, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Keep trusting in me and believing in me because I have a heavenly home waiting for you and I can't wait for you to see it. It's going to be so good. I think one of the problems we have is that that when we go through trouble, all we can see is the difficulty around us, the trouble we're in. You know, the hardships of life can feel overwhelming, crushing, defeating, suffocating. But Jesus says, you know what? This is all going to pale into insignificance when you see what I have in store for you. Just wait. And then in verse 4, he says, you know the place where I am going. You know the place, the way to the place where I'm going. And this is, where we, this is where we meet our first character of the morning. It's, um, it's a lad called Thomas. 
And this is a, this is a photo of him. He's uh, I nicked it off his Insta feed. Um, he was young. He's put on. He's got old since then. Um, but he was young at the time. And um, and Thomas is listening to what Jesus is saying, and, and he and he puts his hand up and he says, Lord, we don't we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? How can we know the way? I love Thomas. I love Thomas in this moment particularly. Not afraid to ask the hard questions. Thomas has been given a bit of a, a, a posthumous uh, nickname, uh, Doubting Thomas, if you've heard, heard that. Um, and the nickname comes from an incident in a few chapters' time where he refuses to believe the rest of the disciples who say that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he says, actually, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, a bit gross, um, I won't believe. He wasn't prepared to simply follow the crowd. He wanted to see Jesus for himself. And it's not the only time that we see this trait in Thomas. On another occasion, Jesus is wanting to go to Bethany to help his friend Lazarus, um, who's just died. Um, and the rest of the disciples are like, no, <laughs> last time we were there, we nearly got stoned. We ain't going. And Thomas turns around and he says, come on, come on, guys, let's go with him that we might die. He's not afraid to stand up and not go with the crowd. He says, I think we should go, lads. And here again, I'm guessing the rest of the disciples, they probably weren't that clued up as to what Jesus was really saying here. They were probably doing that thing, you know, where the teacher's talking, but you don't want to look stupid, so you just kind of listen and keep your mouth quiet. But Thomas, not him, he says, actually, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You see, I don't think Thomas was a doubter. I think Thomas was a seeker of truth. I think Thomas was a seeker of truth. And Jesus always honours seekers. It says in Matthew 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus wants us to come after him, to look for him ourselves, not to simply follow the crowd or accept something to be true because it's what everybody else believes or thinks it is. And Jesus actually, I think, rewards Thomas here with an incredible answer. I'm so glad Thomas asked the question. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He says, I am the way. You don't follow a road or, or, or a path, Thomas. You follow me, just as you have been doing. Continue to do so, and I'll be with you every step of the way. He says, I'm the truth. You're a seeker of truth, Thomas, I'm the one who will give you the answers. Listen to me. Take the things I say on board and grow in your understanding. I'm the life. If you continue to live for me, Thomas, you will experience life to its fullest. You will find out what it means to truly live. And if you do all of that, you will get to know my father as well. I love that Thomas was bold enough to ask this question because I think we're kind of the same. We want to know exactly where we're going and how long it's going to take there and what we need to do in order to get there as fast as possible. Does anyone um, else play that, that game? You know that game, um, Beat the Satnav? Does anyone play that? It's one of my favorite games. 
I was playing it last week. I, I was traveling back from Winchester and the, the sat-nav said I was going to arrive at 7.02. And I thought, nah. <laughs> nah. There's no way. Kids' bedtime is 7 o'clock. I'm going to be there for 7 o'clock. And so I set out full throttle down the motorway. Sometimes the traffic would slow and I'd see the time creep up, 7.03, 7.04. And you start thinking, well, maybe if I get off, maybe there's like a secret road that no one knows about. If I just come off the motorway, perhaps I can cut through that field and get back on time. But, you know, the thing is, the sat-nav knows all the speed bumps, doesn't it, and the roadworks and things that are ahead. And it already has me on the best route. And I think life's journey is a, is a bit like that. We don't know what's round the next bend. We don't know what we're going to face tomorrow, not really. Often life throws us a curveball. I remember when I was um, 16, I felt like um, God was calling me into ministry, like uh, he wanted me to be working in a church. And I'd sort of given my life to Jesus when I was a child, and so I thought, all right, fair enough, God, sounds good. Um, my life is yours, I'll do it. And so I, I made a plan. I worked it all out. I thought, I'll finish my A-levels and I'll save some money and then I'll go to Bible college and then I'll study for three years and then I'll be a pastor and that'll be it. I'll have done what you told me to do and it's all fine. But it, it didn't work out like that. I started um, working at Burger King and then I met my wife at KFC. Um, <laughs> a lot of my life revolved around fast food back then. <laughs> I want to say it doesn't anymore, but <laughs> shouldn't lie. Um, and through Sean, I was introduced to Tamworth Elim, and before I'd even gone to Bible college, I was doing youth work for a church. And I mean, that's the kind of nice bit of my journey. There was, there was a time where I was, I was not in church, and I was working elsewhere, and I, I felt like I was losing um, my faith entirely. But, you know, through it all, God never let go of me, and Jesus, Jesus has used every circumstance of my life so far to bring me to where I need to be. And that journey isn't over, but what I've learned is that I'm not following a, 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 a path or a plan so much as I'm following him. And I'm learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus in every single circumstance of life. And so Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. I've prepared a place for you. Just keep following me. And then we meet our next character in verse 8. Um, this time it's uh, Philip, another one of the disciples. Here he is. He's um, Phil to his mates. He's used a nice filter on that photo, hasn't he? Gone for that old-timey uh, effect. It's Philip's turn to speak. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us. If Thomas was a seeker of truth, I think Philip was a seeker of facts. He was very much the pragmatist of the group. He liked to have all of the available information to hand so that he could make an informed decision. He'd heard Jesus say, you get to know me, you'll know the Father in verse 7. And he thought, well, why not just show us the Father? Because you know, then we can get to know him for ourselves. That would be the best way, right, Jesus? Surely, very pragmatic indeed. Another occasion um, in John chapter 6, if you want to look it up later, Jesus sees a large crowd coming towards him, and he, and he turns to Philip and he says, Phil, because they were mates, um, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And Philip looks at the crowd, and he, he kind of whips out a pen and a, a paper, and he starts to 
do some sums and work it out. And he says, look, Lord, I've done the maths. And it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. Even if we go to Aldi. I've checked with Judas. He says there's a tenner in the kitty, though I'm sure there was more earlier. That was a callback to see if you're paying attention in the series. <laughs> um, and it was another disciple. It was Andrew. He said, look, there's a boy here, and he's got some loaves and fish. And Jesus said, yeah, that'll do. And he fed 5,000 people, and it was, it was amazing. But Philip liked the facts. And so he says to Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus gives him these two incredible answers in this next section. Firstly, he says this. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time. Remember, it's like three years at this point they've been together. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You remember the fish and the loaves thing? Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So his first answer is this. He says, you're asking to see the Father, uh, God, um, but you're forgetting that my very purpose among you is to reveal God to you, to show you what God is like in a way that you can understand and a way that you can comprehend. At the start of John's Gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father has made him known has made him known. There are many people um, throughout the Bible that encounter God, but never face to face. Moses hears him speaking through um, the burning bush, and later on in Exodus um, 33, God hides him in a a cleft of a rock when he passes by. In Exodus 13, the Israelites are led through the desert by a, a pillar of smoke in the day and a pillar of fire at night. There are people like Jacob and Solomon that, that see God, but only in their dreams, never face to face, because God is too great, too majestic, too powerful, too wonderful for us to comprehend or grasp, and so he has to reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand. And the most perfect example of that is Jesus, God in human form. Hebrews 1.3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. And Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus says, you want to understand what the creator of the world is like? It's me. You want to see God? Look at me. You want to know how God feels about you, look at what I'm about to do for you. Wow. If you're on a journey this morning on your way to God, looking for God, the best place you can possibly begin is Jesus. I really believe that. But there's a second part to this answer. Remember in verse 12, he says, 
Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, there's that belief thing again, will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Well, hold on now. How does that make any sense? If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if he's the one that shows us what God is like, how does him leaving help us to do even greater works? I think the answer comes in this next section, beginning at verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus has spoken about the Father, he's spoken about himself, but now he's introducing us to another person, the Spirit of truth. And in the Greek language in which the, this part of the Bible was originally um, written, there are actually two words for another. There is alos and heteros, and they have slightly different meanings. Um, alos means another of the same sort. So if you brought a mint chocolate chip ice cream, you might have another alos, another mint chocolate chip ice cream. Heteros means another of a different sort. So if you brought a mint chocolate chip ice cream but hated it, you might buy another heteros of a different sort, like rum raisin, because <laughs> it's a better flavor. I'm sure we can all agree. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> so when Jesus says the Father will send another advocate, the word he uses is alos, another of the same. What Jesus is telling his disciples is that he has to leave them, but that they shouldn't be troubled because he's going to send someone who is the same as he is to be with them and to help them and to stay with them forever. And he goes on, he says, The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live and you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. So this is really, um, this is really profound actually. Jesus is saying to Philip, you, Phil, you want to see the Father well, the Father's in me, that's verse 10. Listen to me, learn from me, obey my commands because they will lead you into life. But when I go, I'm going to send somebody else who's the same as me to come and live in you. You want to see God, I can do one better than that. God will come and live in your life. He'll take up residence in your life through his Spirit. And this is one of the, the most exciting and important promises of the Christian faith, that we, we don't worship a God who is hidden from us, who is far away, who is at a distant, who is, stands back from our life and lets us get on, it, on with it, but we worship a God who is close by, a God who is near to us, so near, in fact, that he lives within us and guides us and helps us and reminds us of the words that Jesus has spoken to us. And it's because of that fact that God is living in us that Jesus says you can do even greater works than the things that I did. What are those works? Because I don't know about you, but I haven't fed 5,000 people with a Big Mac or walked across the swimming pool to get to the changing rooms faster. 
I think the answer comes not long after Jesus leaves, actually. Like he promised in Acts chapter 2, we read about how the spirit of truth arrives and the disciples, emboldened by the spirit, tell others about Jesus. And Peter addresses the crowd and it says in verse 41 of Acts 2 that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. By chapter 4, it's grown to 5,000. By chapter 8, the church is persecuted and scatters but continues to grow. And today, there are over 2 billion Christians worldwide. Because the greater work is not more spectacular miracles or healings. They were only ever a sign that pointed to Jesus anyway. As wonderful as they are and still, still are, the greater work is people finding relationship with God through Jesus. Because ultimately that's what we all need. Healings are temporary. Miracles are cool. But they don't really help anyone. But salvation is forever. That's the most important thing. There's one final character I just want to briefly mention before I close this morning. Um, it's Judas, but not that one. There's your photo. Because there were two Judases, Judai? Judi- Judases on Jesus' team. Judas Iscariot, who we looked at a few weeks ago, and Judas Thaddeus, or sometimes just Thaddeus, or sometimes just Jude. I imagine he just got tired of saying, I'm Judas, but not that one. Um, I think that's why he looks so annoyed in his, in his photo. <laughs> we don't know a great deal about him. I haven't got any stories to spin. Um, but he has a final question for Jesus here, and I, I think it brings all that we've spoken about this morning together really wonderfully. He says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, why do we get to know about you and your revelation, but not everybody else? Why does everybody else miss out? And Jesus answers him this way. He says, anyone, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And so he finished where he starts with this reminder that everything is going to be okay, that if they stick with him, they have nothing to fear, but also a promise that this revelation of God isn't just for them, but for anyone. Anyone who would come after Jesus, anyone who would seek to know him, to love him, to learn from him. And that includes us. He says in verse 23 that he and his father will come and make their home with them. Just think about that in the context of this chapter. Jesus is saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know things are tough, but, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. Your future, your future is secure. But not only that, I'm going to come and live in you through my spirit and help you to live a life worthy of me. That's amazing, right? And so I just want you to know this morning that whether you are a seeker of truth or a seeker of facts, Jesus holds the answers. 
I imagine in a congregation of this size, some of you don't yet know Jesus for yourself, but perhaps you've got questions like Thomas and, and Philip and Judas had. Not that Judas. That's great. Remember, Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Read through the Gospel of John. We've pretty much done a whole chapter this morning already, so you're ahead. Come on the Alpha course. We've got one starting in a, in a few weeks' time. It's the perfect place to ask questions, to explore. Speak to your friends who have a, a faith, and I really, really encourage you to reach out to God yourself. Remember, Jesus said, don't be afraid. But also, I wanted to say, for those of us who know Jesus already, but you know, recently it feels like things have just started to go wrong. Things have just started to kind of crumble down and the the expectation you had of the journey, the expectation you had of the plan for your life, the way you thought things were going to go, it doesn't look like it's going that way anymore. I want to remind you today that God has not abandoned you. That Jesus cares passionately about your future, that he is preparing a place for you, which may or may not have a bacon dispenser. But in all seriousness, he wants you to get there. Which is why he's given us his spirit. Paul calls the spirit a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. I wonder if the band would would come and join me. I want to just pray for you this morning. I want to pray two prayers this morning. It's greedy, I know. Um, I want to pray a prayer of seeking, and I want to pray a prayer of keeping. So the prayer of seeking is for anyone who is on a journey towards God. Anyone who has those questions uh, of faith. And perhaps this morning you're just at a point where you're wanting to take the next step. You're wanting to really nail your colours to the flag and say, yeah, I want to know more about you, Jesus. That's the first prayer. The second prayer is for those of us whose hearts this morning are troubled. I want to remind you today that Jesus has not left you as an orphan. He has not abandoned you. So I wonder if we just close our eyes together. If, as I'm praying, any of the words that I say um, resonate with you, uh, that, that you agree with them in your heart, maybe you just pray those words for yourself in your own mind and your own um, heart this morning. So firstly, the prayer of seeking. Heavenly Father, I want to know you more. Just like Thomas, I want to find my way to you. And just like Philip, I want to see you for myself. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. And I pray, God, that as I begin to seek after you in earnest, seriously, would you reveal yourself to me through the power of your Spirit. I ask that you would come and make your home in my life today in order that I might get to know you for myself. In Jesus' name, amen. And now the prayer of keeping. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you care about my past, my present, and my future. Father, that even though I'm struggling today, I can take comfort in the knowledge that you are preparing a place for me. That you have not abandoned me or left me as an orphan, but that you have given me your spirit. 
God, would you just draw close to me today? Would you just remind me of your promises? Would you continue to live in me and help me to live for you in the knowledge that you are always by my side? In Jesus' name.